Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. And I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us for another night of history on this Monday night. And joining us, as always, from Texas is uh, the one and only Jeff Kopsetta. And joining What's us, going on? as always, is the ever-faithful Henry Sledge. Henry, Jeff, how are you gentlemen doing tonight? Fantastic. Outstanding. Could you sound any more enthused, Henry? Like, fantastic. Things are great. Thanks for asking. Oh, it couldn't be better, man. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just playing That's with it. That's the biggest I've seen him smile. <laughs> that That is true. We, we do have a new profile picture up on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. We fell in line with everybody else using the cool historical... Uh, filter last week and henry actually sent us like the only photo we have in our entire inventory of him with three quarters of a smile so if you want to enjoy that and all its glory go check out our facebook page and our instagram page but henry why don't you do the honors of introducing our guest tonight okay and i'll try to smile while i'm doing it um if you like historical podcasting it does not get <clears throat> any better than who we have on deck for you tonight we have dan carlin in with us. He is, he's been referred to as the king of long form podcasting. He is a pioneer of podcasting. He's been in the game a while. He's got hardcore history with Dan Carlin with over a hundred million downloads, if not more than that. So uh, my friend, Dan Carlin, we're really happy to have you, Dan. Thanks for having me on guys. I appreciate it. Thank you so much so, for coming on. So I was Dan, you, can you just give us like a thumbnail sketch of, of how you got from graduating college in 1989 with a BA in history, which is right around the time I got out, to, to the superlatives that are used to describe what you do? I, I know it's a long road, but thumbnail sketch of how you got to this point. Obviously, an endemic love of history. Oh, yeah. I like to look at it as sort of a inspirational story for other people because boy there were so many times along the way where i was just going what am i doing you know i mean uh and looking at my age and going i should be farther than i am now and all these kinds of things so to have you say all those nice things about me um it's it, it's i mean it's a bit of a miracle <laughs> from from my point no. of view the, the answer to the question though is um when you get out of uh, college and, and sometimes you have a degree that obviously leads you in a certain direction right you get a law degree you start trying to become a lawyer the history degree is a lot more sort of amorphous. I mean, what do you what do you naturally run into? Right. And I ended up in the news business. And the funny part about the news business was after a while, you find out that a lot of the reporters that you really admire, the ones that they trust with those complicated stories with big, you know, back tails involved and everything, are, are, we're all history majors also. So what's that line that uh, journalism is the first draft of history? So it doesn't hurt to have somebody trained in history to be a journalist. And so, uh, uh, you know, and then you follow opportunities along the way, right? You take the left turn at Albuquerque when it shows up and all of a sudden you're podcasting in 2005 and you become a pioneer, as you called me, sort of accidentally and, uh, you know, serendipitously, right? A right place, right. right time kind of thing. Did you feel like you had an unusual love of reading compared to other journalists and, and people who were in radio at that time? 
Oh, I don't know. I think most of the people that I worked with that were the real serious types were all reading. I mean, it was sort of a prerequisite for the job. I will say I was reading some strange stuff when I was a little boy. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, there were a lot of adults asking weird questions like, why has he got the rise and fall of the Third Reich, <laughs> you know, as a five-year-old? Uh, so, I mean, there there were lots of questions my parents asked, but and that may be a little unusual. But once you get into into journalism, I mean, this was the days before the Internet. We were reading five, six, seven newspapers a day as part wow. of the job. So, and nobody was getting off without doing the reading. Yeah. That's when uh, you I, had to verify with two to three different sources before you even thought about going to publish. With it. It was, it's funny that that seems so old school because they were talking about the decline of journalism way back then. And from where we stand now, it looks like some sort of golden age. You know? Well, it, you know, it's funny. I did a short six years in terrestrial radio and the guys that I produced for their afternoon show, they had been on the same station here in Fort Myers since 1997. And I was working for them in 2013. And since they had been on the radio so long, they had that old school training of like whenever I would do something during the show, if there was a shooting or something breaking news wise, they said, hey, before you come back on the air with it, verify it with two credible sources. So they still had that old school mentality even back in 2013. But a lot of people nowadays, it almost seems like their their motto is now, let's run with it first and we'll worry about apologizing for it later. I remember the big change, too. You can see it. The big change happened because we used to not like I was at an ABC uh, station in Los Angeles, and that's sort of where I learned how to do the job. And um, we couldn't quote any other TV stations. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't you couldn't give sort of props to NBC or, or CBS. These are like corporate verboten kind of yep. things. And it dovetailed into the news mission rather nicely. And I remember watching TV and I don't remember the year, but it was like the Monica Lewinsky stuff. It was that whole era where, where simply being able to go really fast started to become really important. And all of a sudden, somebody broke that barrier where on one network station, they'll say NBC is reporting. Well, yep. and then once that started happening, it just like the floodgates opened. It was like breaking some commandment. And once you do it, you know, then everybody does it. Yeah, because the commandment was you don't mention the competition, even if you're bad mouthing them, because you don't want somebody to go say, well, let's go here. How bad exactly. they truly are. And, so, exactly. and now it's CNN exactly. and Fox News just going at each other all night, throwing each other yeah, yeah, all yeah. around. Exactly right. It was, and because that was the zero sum uh, era of media where if you're watching NBC at eight o'clock, you can't be watching ABC at eight mm-hmm. o'clock. Now, of course, you know, nobody cares because you can watch them both. Just like if you got booked as a comedian, if you got booked on Carson, you were not getting booked on Letterman. That's right. Soon. That's right. The old blacklisting. Absolutely right. Go ahead. Do you feel like? You, oh, go ahead, Don. No, go ahead. Do you feel like Dan that you have a particular interest in a certain area of history? Like I know, obviously, you've done a lot of World War II content, but you're really well rounded. I mean, like when it comes to history, I'm pretty much in one lane. My primary interest is going to be World War II, maybe some other stuff, but it's usually going to be that. It seems like your your shows that I've checked out really cover a broad spectrum. Well, I appreciate you saying that because it probably describes why I wouldn't have become a historian or a good historian because I could never narrow it down. You know, where you really need a, a narrow slice and you really need to become a real expert, you know, Anglo-Saxon literature or something like. And I just couldn't focus on. I mean, I love so many things. But there's definitely, I mean, really, the funny thing is, is if, and, and listeners have done this, where they've plotted out the subject matter of the various podcasts, and it does tend to fall into several main areas. And so I'll get letters, um, emails, I'm showing my age now, from people who will say, you know, can you please do a show on 17th century India or something? And I have to say, I just, 
I would do a really bad show on 70s century because I don't know anything about it. So all the shows are are, are representative of interests that I had mm-hmm. once or or upon a time in my life. And I just have enough foundation so that I can build the new research off of that. But there's tons of stuff I know nothing about, to be actually honest. Well, that's when the uh, prospect of having a quote unquote expert on to help basically fill in those gaps. You may know a little something about something like we do here. You know, the three of us know a lot about a lot, but we don't know everything about everything. And so we bring in a third party who can fill in those gaps and kind of answer our questions. And that's where the uh, guest really comes into play for some of those episodes. That's what the Hardcore History Addendum series that we started is. So I can do the 17th century India show. I just have to have a historian of 17th century India on with me. I can ask the right questions, right? And I'm sure the journalism background, especially the format you do, um, you know, you do these long form formats and, you know, you do a lot of studying, a lot of pre-scripting and all that, with the exception of your what you refer to as your Blitz episodes. And I'm sure, you know, the radio journalism and all that just how to write copy and try to condense it even though you're you know two three hour podcast but condensing it down but you know the the steps of telling a story in a way in which it flows and keeps people's attention i'm sure a lot of that came from your years in journalism and radio both well actually yeah because we don't there are no scripts there's nothing written down and that's all from radio because Mm -hmm. you guys know there's a format in radio like a talk radio format on a news station where you have news at the top of the hour you have all these breaks that are programmed into it and then you have time to talk within those spaces and there's always like at the beginning of an opinion show i would do three hours a day five days a week and i used to say i was a pretty good talk show host two of those days that that was the problem (laughs) um but uh uh there was like a 12 to 15 minute intro section where you sort of do the monologue, right. And you lay out the say, you make your case. And that was always the part I was best at. It was kind of all downhill from there. Uh, And the first podcast that we did were sort of 15, 16, 17 minutes long, sort of take, it was just that part. And then long winded as I am. And with the ability to edit pieces together and Mm -hmm. everything else, they just, the, the real problem to be honest with you is that these stories ended up taking more time to tell properly. Yeah. And so they would just grow in the telling. I, I'm I'm kind of ashamed of having five and a half hour long shows, even though the listeners that still listen to those like them. But I mean, that was never the intention. Well, I mean, podcast is the perfect format because most of your listeners, I'm sure, they either listen to you in the car on the way to work, they listen to you on the way back, then get back in, listen to the gym or walking the dog, going to the kids' basketball game, whatever. And so that episode, yeah, it may be five hours long, but it fill so much of people's time their their idle time that you know they're happy it takes that long because hey i got three days worth of content here i don't have to sit well, down and listen not getting all one anything more from me for a long <laughs> time so it takes us so long to get those suckers out you just oh. better ration it and like make it last i can imagine <laughs> how, how many are you obviously you probably do a lot of your editing yourself but how many people do you have on your team over there oh there's there's one creative and that's me and then possibly somebody else but that's about it yeah it's just easier to keep your your idea of the way you want your show to go. And you know what? I don't want to manage people. I'm not a good people manager. I I have enough problems staying in my own lane. And the more people we have, the more I'd have to do that because I have this, this leadership pyramid designed like a pyramid and I can't, I can't delegate very well. And so keeping the, uh, the group small is important. Yeah. And it, it minimizes, uh, employee complaints. You can talk (laughs) bad about yourself, (laughs) but you know, that's right. I complain. That's me. (laughs) My, you know, my, my introduction to what you did was Supernova in the East. And a friend of mine put me onto that and I checked it out, started listening to it. I was 
really the thing I thought was so cool about it was you, you you go in with the Japanese Empire as they come to power going into China, and you explore that. Which I just finished Richard Frank's book Tower of Skulls here. He's about great, two isn't months he? Ago. Yeah, that that is a very deep scholarly study of the subject. I'm glad he's doing a trilogy of it. But um, I, I loved the way you explored all the the China, the Manchuria aspects of it. Not only that, but you you explored a lot of themes with what we did in the war against Japan. And maybe I'm jumping too far ahead here, but you explored a lot a lot of moral questions without doing any of this oh we've got to be self-recriminating and judge ourselves as a nation because you you say contextually so you have to look at this in the moral calculus of 1945 you know why did we firebomb tokyo well look at what was going on in 1945 leading up to that look at what was going on in the strategic calculus it was just the way you tied all that together i just thought was really well done and really laid it out very well well, you might actually like a show that we did a while ago called Logical Insanity, and it was an exploration. It was essentially supposed to be about the atomic bomb, but but you can't understand the atomic bomb without understanding the, the idea of strategic bombing and how it developed right. to begin with. And the part that always blows me away about this is if you read and really get into the sources, the people that were advocates, and you guys I'm sure all know this, but for the, any audience members who might not, the people, because you ask yourself, who could, who, who in their right mind, and these were our neighbors, my next door neighbor was a guy uh, who was a, a, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, a, a fighter pilot. And so, I mean, we would have these conversations and you say, how can Mr. Downey uh, go and bomb, you know, people in these cities? But, but that's not how it went. In their minds, there's a strategic rationale for this that says you are shortening the war. And in a right. war where you can literally look at the casualties like a tote board reliably, eight, 10, nine, you know, I mean, thousands of people every day that if you shorten that war, you shorten the death total, right? So the so the the idea behind logical insanity was to explore this idea about, about how good human beings can actually come to the decision that bombing Dresden to rubble is humanitarian and helpful, right? And it's a fascinating way to look at how people live with themselves and how these things come to be amongst even the so-called good guys, right? And mm -hmm. there were people after the war and there are still people today that will back up this idea that strategic bombing used correctly will shorten a conflict's duration, that shortening a conflict's duration is humanitarian, you know, on its face. I mean, there's, it's a fascinating subject to try to get into so that when you get to the atomic bomb, the rationale's already been set up and it's been set up over two world wars, you know, in decades. It, it's, it's, I find it one of the most fascinating parts of American 20th century history, actually. And I think it was one of the addendum shows I listened to today you did with Ian Toll. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I loved and him. He was great. He, he I actually just finished his first volume, Pacific Crucible. And he talks about how there were two aspects to the war. And I, I, he's the first person I've ever heard say this. But he said there were two aspects to it. There was a sequential aspect, which was, you know, you, you start at point A, invade point B, point C, and so on. But then you had the cumulative aspect where you're chipping mm -hmm. away at say germany's war productive capability via strategic bombing or the japanese war making capability via strategic bombing i never heard it put that way but i thought that was pretty fascinating oh there's a great book by uh um uh adam twos called um uh the wages of destruction 
And Tooze's book, you know, when, when you're like we are, we've all read Second World War books since we were children, practically. It's hard to give us a new angle, although every generation of historians tries to, right? Ian Toll's an economist. He's focused on, on economics. And I thought, oh, God, do I really want to dive into a book on economics? It was the first book that I've read in my lifetime that all of a sudden the Third Reich's foreign policy decisions made sense to me. And so check that book out, because what he's showing is the things that would be way too boring to show an average uh, neophyte on the Second World War who wants to hear you know, the big picture stuff. But it's all the, the resources that they were lacking and the timelines that they had. And all of a sudden, you know, when, when I was a kid, they used to say things like Hitler was crazy. And that's the only thing that that can explain Germany's crazy foreign policy decisions. Ian Toll's book, The Wages of Destruction, is the best example where I've ever come out of the book going, okay, I really understand things about that better than I did. The other one, by the way, is Albert Speer's book, Inside the Third Reich. Mm -hmm. Classic. I can't remember the author's name, but there's another one called uh, The Pathology of of Evil. It's about Adolf Hitler and his childhood and all that. that. That, to me, presented a lot of good evidence of why Hitler did a lot of the crazy things he did. And so that's another one if you want a little bit of an insight on his personality and what some believe drove him to make the decisions he did. It's called Pathology of of Evil. And it's a fascinating situation, yes. You know, I tried, when I was a kid, uh, Dan, I tried to read my dad's copy of Rise and Fall of the Third Reich <laughs> by William Shire. And I don't know how many hundreds of pages I got into it before I just, ugh, you know, I just lost <laughs> it's not very often I start a book and not finish it, but I, I may have gotten 300 pages into it, but uh, who was it today you were talking about? It was one of the, another one of the addendum shows. They were saying, yeah, the, it may have been you that said the, the, some minutiae that he was, that Shira was talking about, about the German economy. I can't remember what it was. I wish I could remember the the metaphor, but it was some really fine economic detail and and whoever you were talking to was saying, man, that, that was kind of hard to get through that part. You know, what's great about him though. Like when I was a kid, I read it one way. And when I go back, there's several books that I've read multiple times and gotten different things out of it at different stages in my life. That book is now a wonderful sort of time capsule because it's second world war history from a lot closer to the second world war. And mm-hmm. so the bi- the biases from the time period are really heavily involved. And also the fog of war, as we all know, lasts a long time after the conflict is over. And he was essentially starting that book as a functioning journalist during the war. Right. So it's like when you go back and, and I still do this because you'll never see anything like this and go watch some of the um, episodes from the world at war, that series that we grew up with, the yes. you know, like Thames television. And the reason it's so great is they have, even though it's so biased because it's so close to the conflict, they have all the participants. And yeah. I mean, the generals, they have all of them. And, you know, you'll only have that chance to get those people on tape talking about it for a limited number of decades after the conflict, but it's created an invaluable resource. It's not the way you would do the story today, knowing mm-hmm. what we know now, but my God, you put it on and you just feel like, where are you going to get something like this again, you know? Well, that brings me to a quote I heard on your show recently that said something along the lines of the problem with history is we always apply today's politics to history of, of the old. And kind of what you're saying, when you go back and watch those old World of the World of War episodes, that were filmed in the fifties, a short, you know, eight years after the war, the opinions are a lot different compared to stuff that may be produced on the same subject matter, but with today's historians and today's experts who would apply our policies and politics of today, how that history has changed a little bit. 
That is a great quote to bring up, and it's worth remembering. We should say it's from Ohio State University historian Robert C. Davis. And he said, history is often as not our present politics projected onto the past. And 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 listen, that's as as we all know, that's what historiography is, right? Historians trying to figure out how to weed out the biases of the of the contemporary sources, right? Um, no, great point to bring up. And I was saying this a few years ago when we were going through that that era of let's tear down the statues regardless of, you know, then when even got went off the rails and it was like, wait a minute, um, no, you don't want to tear that statue down. It's like in the mid, mid to early 2000s, we've already seen, you know, pe- some people in the Middle East started cl- trying to claim that, you know, certain p- aspects of World War II didn't happen and they're trying to redefine history. It's like, well, who's to say 80 years from now, we don't have a group of people who have a certain mindset trying to redefine or deny that, certain aspects of the civil war never happened because here we are taking down all the monuments, erasing the history. It's like a monument doesn't have to be a celebration of something that happened. It's just a reminder of what happened. So we don't repeat it to look at every monument as a celebration, I think is a a huge disservice. And if you don't look at every monument as a celebration, but as a historical reminder, then, you know, maybe we can get away with not tearing statues down and it's, you know, and help preserve our history. Yeah, but, you know, there's a long history of human beings doing that, and we always sort of celebrate it when it's Joseph Stalin's statue (laughs) being toppled, right? Or Saddam Hussein. Yeah, yeah, or Ashurbanipal back in the Assyrian Empire getting his eye carved out by some (laughs) Median who's just, you know, taken the capital down in ancient times. I mean, because those are symbols— as times change and, and attitudes change, the symbols often take the brunt of it. I mean, go sure. look at those Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics where somebody has scratched out the name of some ruler to try to eliminate them from the memory of world history. I mean, the, the, it's it's funny, but I look at this as just a complicated part of humanness and wrapped up into who we are. I mean, I, I don't get into the like the, the current politics of it as much as I look at it and go, we people just do crap like that. <laughs> I was, you know, that's who, that's who we are. Absolutely. Kind of on that subject, too. I was listening. I love that dog. Oh, that's my, Miss Bailey, the Boston Terrier. She's a That's sweetheart. the co-pilot. Oh, yep. She she comes in and decides when it's time to make an appearance. Um, I was listening to your episode <laughs> on human resources, and you kind of started that episode off with a, hey, you know, a lot of people told me not to go down this road um, because of what the subject matter is, but, you know, you believe it's important to share the subject matter because it's history. Do you find yourself kind of, maybe not yourself, but kind of people suggesting, hey, don't touch that subject more and more nowadays than opposed to when you first started all those years ago? Um, I think so. Um, you know, sometimes with history, you're a little safer, but not always. Yeah. Um, uh, and you can't be afraid of this stuff, though. It, it becomes a challenge. So, mm-hmm. like, uh, uh, you try to figure out, okay, if this is such a landmine of a hot-button issue now – how can we diffuse it? How can we tell it in a way where, because I feel like the sheer fact that other people are shying away from it makes it particularly fertile ground, right? Because sure. it's, you know, unplowed by other people, but it's unplowed by them because there's landmines everywhere <laughs> yep. and trying to figure out how not to get blown up while you're talking about them is important. Um, but, you know, I, I as you get older, um, I'm always finding it interesting to, to, to find out what younger people don't know. And it's not because this generation knows less than the last generation. It's because all younger people know less Mm -hmm. than 56-year-old guys because I've been around longer. So I was watching these videos of younger people 
20, 22, 23, listening to music that I would assume everybody in the whole yeah. world has heard, right? Beatles or something like that. And they're going, I never heard this stuff before. What? And and so now let's take that non sequitur of, of an idea and apply it to history too. I always assume that things like the history of slavery in a broad sort of sense is something people understand. Because when I was growing up, it was really this period of uh, showing roots on television as an event, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. I mean, there was there was a concerted effort in that time period, maybe the first time period in American history really ever to look into this subject. And I have to remember that that wears off mm -hmm. just like the stuff when we grew up, it was all about you showing you movies about nuclear war and talking yeah. about how dangerous and awful that would be, but that wears off too. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was the part about the human resources that I was a little surprised is it didn't seem that it should be a story that needed retelling, but I forgot how long it's been since I was exposed to that, you know, in depth, almost, it was almost a national um, awakening yeah. where we were going to examine this issue together back in the day before media was totally balkanized and fractionalized, right? We could, 80 million people could watch a television show together and come out of it and talk about it at the water cooler the next day. But that wears off, right? Just like the day after the 1983 or four or 86 uh, nuclear war movie had such an impact, but you know, kids today haven't seen that. So that's maybe why history, we always have to tell these stories again. Yeah, it's kind of back when let's have an open dialogue meant let's have an open dialogue. Now it's like, let's pretend we're going to and then yell at each other until the whole conversation. Well, let's not pretend home. it was always nice. No, 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 not at all. But you could have, but you could have, have a dialogue. The, yeah, that you, was the difference. Yep. Jeff, you want to, you have any questions? Uh, I just want to say that this is the longest ever gone in a podcast without saying anything well then you're overdue let's lip. make up for some lost time because it's dan freaking carlin oh, here man no, i mean this is stop. unbelievable um I, so i have to say that uh you're the first podcast i ever listened to um basically really? i had a, yeah I, I just i don't want to say it was maybe five six years ago um I, i'm just not up on a lot of that stuff and i had a couple of reenactor buddies of mine that were, you know, they, they were talking about uh, some of your stuff and they were like, wait, you've never heard of Dan Carlin? Like, how big is this rock that you live under, Cop said? And I'm like, <laughs> I just don't, I just don't do, it. I don't know. And it was at the time where I was commuting about 150 miles to work. Perfect. And people were like, this, yeah, that's You're my target you know, audience, just, baby. <laughs> exactly. Long haulers. And, you know, they were like, you know, hey, you know, you should get into audiobooks. Like, no, I can't, I, I need a book. Like I need a book in my hand. I can't do audio books. I can't too. do Kindle, anything like that. Me too. So I said, <laughs> okay, fine. I'll, I'll see what this hardcore history is all about. And it was your countdown to Armageddon. And still, that's probably 90% of my knowledge base on the First World War. I mean, I have, I have read a few books since I'm really interested in the aviation aspect of the First World War. And, you know, something you brought up before – I, I really find it interesting. I find the air war in the first world war interesting because it helps me understand the air war in the second world war on a whole nother level. You can read every book you want about the second world war, but if you don't really understand what came before it, it seems like you're, you're always going to be missing, you know, that, that little bit. So I have definitely found that it is so important. If this is your niche, then you need to kind of look back before it and put yourselves in those shoes because let's face it, you know, the, the bomber mafia, these guys had flown these types of missions and that's what's making, you know, helping make these decisions 
now, just like you're mentioning about, you know, um, uh, the, uh, the, the German policy. So if you really put yourself into what was there at that particular moment in time, these decisions start making sense. So, um, yeah, it, it's been incredible listening to some of that. And of all the books that I've read on the First World War, I, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever really, like, taken a quote from one in a conversation. But I have shared a lot from what I listened to in Countdown Armageddon. Uh, when I talk about the First World War, because it just some of these things really stick. I, the, just off the top of my head, the um, the excursion or the expedition to Antarctica, and the uh, I want to say it was the captain of the ship when he was finally found, he could not believe that the First World War was still going on based oh, yes. on the amount of casualties that he had known of before the before he left on the expedition, and that. Just something like that to, to really that just stuck in my mind that how incredible uh, that war was, you know, up to that moment in, in human history that, that it could that it could have an effect like that on somebody. That, that, so that's just one of those things that really sticks in my head. So um, I, I just really I really appreciate, um, you know, everything you've done for history because you really do give it a whole nother level. You help guys like me and. You know, so I'm getting my BA in history right now. Um, you know, as a 38 year old online student, yeah, from Southern Fantastic. New Hampshire. So watch out for this guy. <laughs> but um, a, a lot of what you've said has really made sense because, um, you know, I think about, uh, and my wife can really, really agree with this. You know, people always tell, why do you overanalyze everything? Just, you know, like, oh, hey, babe, you never guess what happened at work today. But then I'll go back like, well, let me set the stage from last week. Let me lead you up into all these details. This is why this is relevant. Why, you know, we overanalyze. We're long-winded, you know. And you have certainly uh, been an influence to me that it's okay to be a little long-winded because we want to share the story with you. And and I, I'm getting into uh, this is my first year of teaching at, at the high school uh, level. And I will be in the, uh, in the history department next year at this high school to be able to share uh, my knowledge base until I can become a certified history teacher. That's my ultimate goal. And uh, it, it's been very special uh, to see, again, like you had mentioned, what young people are exposed to today, kind of the things that we take for granted that they know that they really don't. And uh, it, it was a little frustrating, I think, at first. Uh, when, when people ask me different things about the Second World War, and it's you can just kind of tell there's just no fabric there that, that's sticking to because they've never really been exposed to it. And at first, it was kind of frustrating. And people ask me all the time, "How do you, you know, how, the, the young generation?" And they're always on their phones, and you know, they don't really know history. Like, you know, it's a little frustrating at first, but then if you think they're an open canvas, you know, they are, they they are a. a knowledge sponge and it's up to us and, and today's historians and tomorrow's historians and podcasters and authors to make sure we are getting it right because we have a whole new generation of people like you said that a lot of that stuff wore off they, they're not watching uh battle of the bulge on monday night you know or, or or things like that they're not they're not watching victory at sea the tv series so uh it makes it I, i've looked beyond that little bit of that frustrating part and looked at wow, this job just got a lot more important. 
Well, first of all, thank you for all the nice comments about the show. Uh, second of all, fantastic to hear that you're getting the BA in history. The, 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 when we started the history podcast, the entire thing was supposed to be for people like you. You were my target audience, right? And we, that's why the shows were so short. We weren't even going to get into the history. We were just going to assume you knew the history. And then we could have this wild conversation about these angles to it. And it developed because a lot of the people didn't know the history. But so you were like the target audience. To get back to the World War One, World War II thing, you made a wonderful point, which not enough people make, is that if you're going to be a second World War buff, your knowledge is completely incomplete if you don't go back to the first World War, especially if you're into weapons and tactics and strategies. It doesn't make any sense at all. Like you go and you look at how stormtrooper tactics that were so big at the beginning of the Second World War were perfected and developed in the first due to conditions in the first, right? The trench stalemates and everything. I mean, that's just one example. You brought up aircraft. There's a million of them where, you know, my stepdad and he saw the world because he was uh, born in 1928. He saw the world in a more. Um, uh, short term fashion. So he would always point out to me, it was like two decades between the two world wars. He said it's part one and it's part two. And I think in Blueprint for Armageddon, we actually compared it to like a fight where you have a, a wild round and that's the first world war. And then the, the boxers sit on their stool, they get sponged off, they get their hair slicked back again, a little revive, some ice down the shorts, and then boom, you go out for the second world war. Um, so to me, I, I, I think the first time I ever went back and studied the First World War, just like the Adam II's Wages of Destruction book, all of a sudden it illuminated so much about the second because it's really two halves of the same whole, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. After all, the Marine Corps, they were fighting with World War One gear in Guadalcanal. I mean, so it definitely carried over. Yeah, and I think I brought it up too on, on another show where I, I'm curious – 100, 200, 500 years from now, will the first and second world war kind of be seen that that footnote in history? Then will that be seen like those Greco-Persian or the uh, the uh, Greco uh, wars, where it was just this, and then 10, 15 years later there was another one, then there was another one. Will there will there be that clear distinction between the second world wars? You know, it's interesting to, to think about that part one and part two. Or, or are they two entirely different campaigns conflicts wars whatever you want to call them and I, I think i tend to lean towards like what you said i, I think it's it, they're so close and one certainly set up set the stage for the for the second um it's interesting to think about for sure oh, and some leaders at the time predicted it remember there were leaders that said you just signed your death warrant for another world war you know at the time absolutely Go ahead, Henry. You know, the, one of the other things you were talking to Ian Toll when it was one of the, the addendum shows that I listened to, and I think he brought it up. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he illustrated the irony of we, we were absolutely bombing Japan to utter and complete destruction. But we retained their emperor. We have the Soviets as an ally. So they are supposedly helping us in Japan's reign in World War II. And then we go into Japan, build up their country, build up their economy, utilizing their emperor as a figurehead and an ally post-World War II, so that then we can have them help us as a bulwark against communism and the Russians. 
I just thought that was really ironic. I think that was in one of the Ian Toll addendum episodes that you guys talked about that. Well, it is interesting when you think about it, too, the idea of using things like the Marshall Plan, right, and sending food to starving people as a geopolitical weapon, you know, I mean, I remember, and I don't remember, it was it was either Julie Andrews or Audrey Hepburn, one of those people from uh, from uh, 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 from that day who had grown up as a kid in the second world war and said that it was things like Marshall plan food that was keeping their family alive. And you think about the impact of something like that. And then you think about the motivation. It's wonderful. Isn't it? When you can have geopolitics dovetail with humanitarian concerns so that it's killing two birds with one stone. But I mean, the same thing applies to Japan, right? I mean, the, the, we, you know, as you get older, five years doesn't seem like anything, right? So to go right. from 1945, really, I mean, the Cold War probably starts in 47, mm-hmm. right? So that's really just two years. So I think of how, I mean, you're basically early on into the occupation in Japan, and you're already starting, really, as some would say, already starting to think about the upcoming Cold War while the Second World War is still going on. So, I mean, I noticed it when I was doing the show, the Supernova show, where historians still have this really hard time piercing the veil between the propaganda that was put out by the West after the Second World War was over to sort of, let's call it just shade some of the imperial decisions that might have not looked too good for us to be too closely allied with. And now, years later, when the geopolitical rationale for doing that is long gone, the cover-up is still there and historians still have to try to go, okay, was this a MacArthur piece of propaganda or did the emperor, was he really a figurehead or a puppet or was he really more involved? And a lot of that obfuscation happened because of our geopolitical needs to make Japan out to not be as horrifying so that it would be okay to be an ally with them against the Soviets a mere two years after they were our friends in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. You have a great radio voice, Henry. Did anybody ever tell you that? Just, just uh, that right uh, good radio voice. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Actually, he, yeah, speaking of radio, my my pot just died. No, he's actually had people suggest that he gets into voiceover work, and that's something he was working on for a while. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I, I hear a Ford uh, car commercial, a truck commercial in your future. Yeah, that, <laughs> maybe anything voiceover, I would love it. But <laughs> The late models are in, Henry. <laughs> so... With your long format episodes, how do you come up with the next episodes? Is there something that you're currently researching, something pop up in your head one day while out taking a walk? And how far ahead do you plan your your episodes because of the amount of work that goes into them? Yeah, I always say that's how you know we're an art project and not a real business because a real business would have this all, Mm -hmm. you know, your next 10 shows, wouldn't you? They'd all be out on paper. Uh, Not only do I not know uh, what you're doing next normally, uh, it takes me a little while, especially after something like Supernova, which is like two years of your life. Uh, It takes a little bit of time afterwards to just go what do I feel like reading for a while, right? Or what? Because you really got to be into it. This is going to be your life for several months. So to answer your question, not only do I not know, um, the reason human resources took as long as it did is it took me a long time to settle on the topic. So instead of using that time for basic research, I'm still working out the kinks of whether or not I can, 
whether or not I can tackle that. Some of these things you have to look at and go, wow, how would I even approach that? And then there's some sitting down and trying it out. And then you might put six weeks into it and go, you know, the answer is, is I can't do that. So, so now I have to start from scratch. So, so to answer your question, I not only don't know, but it's probably like one of our biggest business blind spots, maybe. I'm sure some, some of the subject matter, you got to think it's going to take me months. Do I feel like being in a, continuous state of depression because the subject matter is so heavy and you know some of the stuff i'm gonna have to read about and look into is just you know because not all history is sunshine and lollipops a lot of it's pretty hardcore and um you know i remember tom hanks once said in an interview someone asked him out of all the the movies you've ever done is there one that affected you the most and at the time he said save it private ryan because you know he said when you're the type of actor that i am and that we are you're spending 12, 13 hours a day immersing yourself mentally and physically and emotionally into a environment. And in this case, World War II, where you're seeing actors betraying, you know, and extras getting blown up. He said, and if you're doing it right, you're basically living those thoughts, those emotions for those many months during that production that it just drains him. I'm sure, you know, sometimes, you know, you're reading books and you're like, oh boy, this is going to be a rough chapter here. And I think uh, Henry was telling me about, you know, there's a couple of books he had read in the past. It's like, it's a good book, but you got to be emotionally prepared to get on that road. Yeah, this is where I'm weird. I don't have that problem. <laughs> this is, and, and, and this is, and I don't know why, because I'm, I'm this, my wife laughs all the time because I have to walk out of the room during a lot of different television shows. And she, she'll say to me, she goes, now, wait a minute. You can talk and read about all the stuff that you see. I would I read this stuff for fun, which yeah. is the bizarre thing to say. So I'm reading this anyway. If I can get a podcast out of it, more is the more is the power to me. But but my wife will say, you walk out of the room when this is on TV, but then you go ahead and you talk about that. So I can't explain the discrepancy between the two, but I'm reading upsetting things anyway. Now, there are some <laughs> limits. There was a book by Robert Fisk called The Great War for Civilization, and Fisk was a war correspondent. And the stuff that he saw, he was one of the guys that, that made me realize how lucky I was to not have gone in yeah. to becoming a war correspondent because of what, I mean, it literally, it's like seeking out PTSD, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and But I wouldn't know. When I was 24, I thought this was going to be a great gig. I want to be a war correspondent. Now I realize through reading real war correspondents' work how fortunate I was to have, if you'll pardon the pun, dodged that bullet. Um, but that book was the only book that I can remember, and I've read some nasty ones, where I had to put it down before bed and read something else Clean your palate. <laughs> to sort of cleanse the palate, right? Let's rewind a little bit because I'm interested because I worked in radio. How did how did you get into the transition into radio? I was a television reporter. Uh, and it's 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 one of those serendipity stories. Like my dad had a great line. I always quote my dad. Henry, you'll quote your dad, too. Uh, and he said, if you look back on your life at the end of your life and try to connect the dots that got you from where you started to where you ended up, you, you'll never be able to do it because mm -hmm. there's too many weird things that happen along the way. And and that's one of those weird stories where I was a television reporter and there was um, there was somebody who was involved in a political hot button issue of the day. So he, they were, uh, uh, let's call them a temporary statewide celebrity. Sure. And so it was a news story for me to go down to a radio station uh, and sort of do a story about this guy coming to the radio station and that kind of thing. 
So did did the story. And at the end, I thought, should I send that program director a note just saying, hey, I really enjoyed meeting you or should I not? And it was one of those moments where your hand hesitates by the envelope. Do I don't I do I don't I. And I just dropped it off and, and walked away. And two days later, he called, said, want to have lunch? And I mean, literally, it flew. It, it sort of flowed right from there. And you're just going what if I didn't send that letter? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's made me think back on all the lives of all these people we read about in history and, and said to myself, everybody's got those moments, right? Julius Caesar, when I'm reading about, he has those moments. Hitler, when you're, he has those moments. I mean, what if you don't do this? Um, and so the answer to the question is, is it was literally that simple. I, I wrote a note after, after a story to station, I made contact with this program director. He said, ever think about doing this? Let's try it out. You know, and, I talk a lot anyway, so it kind of dovetailed pretty nicely. My skill set matched what he wanted me to do. It's pretty interesting because I think it was maybe two or three episodes ago. We were talking about, you know, all the things that Jeff has gotten into. And, you know, he's doing a history historical advisement on motion pictures. He's He was in a short film and all the stuff that awesome. Henry gets involved with and, and a few things that I've done. And we were talking about how a lot of it comes down to the ability to recognize an opportunity and put your foot, not, not be too scared to put your foot in there. You may, Hey, here's an opportunity and something I have no experience in. Um, I don't know if I'll achieve it, but let's just go ahead and wedge that door open and pop our head in and see what happens. And I think having the ability to recognize those little door cracks is a huge, is a huge advantage to, um, having some weird opportunities just kind of pop up. Cause same thing happened to me. I, I was doing computer repair. I started in it for a minute four and I had a fleet van that just had an AM FM radio. And, you know, I used to be a stern listener and all that back in the day. I moved down here to Southwest Florida. I'm driving around and I'm hearing, you know, this afternoon show, one of the hosts is complaining about their computer running like crap. Well, I'm an IT guy. And I had shot him a few joking emails in the past. And, and you'll appreciate this as a radio guy. I sent him an email and I said, Hey, not only can I fix your computer, I don't even have to show up to your house to do it. And as you know, radio, you know, p- people who are considered local celebrities, last thing they want is quote unquote fanboys knowing where they live, let yeah. alone in their house. <laughs> and so the idea that I can remote in his computer and fix it and he could watch what I'm doing to make sure I'm, you know, minding my P's and Q's. So I did that, ended up fixing the other host's computer. And then a few months later, they asked me if I knew anything about Facebook. Sure. Can you help manage our Facebook page? Did that for a few years. And then one day their producer quit, and I got a phone call saying, hey, no one knows our show better than you. We want to come work in radio. And, of course, you know, some of the people station were upset that they hired outside because that's a big thing, too. you got to hire inside. you got to promote for them within. But they wanted somebody who knew the show, who could produce best ofs and produce, you know, segments and all that. And because I had so much experience, you know, modifying their, their website, and I, and I actually built and hosted a website for them for years. And so just noticing that opportunity, hey, sure. Just doing something to help somebody out for free for you, especially when it comes to radio. You want to do something for free, that's the quickest way to get in the radio, real, especially nowadays. And so just having the ability to recognize opportunities will get you into some interesting situations. Oh, yeah. Life is a verb is one of my favorite sayings. You have to actually, like, do something. And the funny thing about it is, is that when you start doing something, as you said, weird things start to happen Mm -hmm. sometimes, right? George Foreman, the boxer, had a great line. He was talking about advertising opportunities and stuff after his career was over. He said he learned to just say yes. 
and good things were happening to him after he did that. The funny thing is, is you can always bail if you take these moves and you don't like you. Can, but if you don't try, you end up in the house looking around going, why is nothing ever changing for me? And the work, you know, if you fall on your face, that happens. But they, they, it's starting to sound like one of those shows where it's just somebody going rah, rah, you can do it. But the funny but thing is, true. nobody ever does do it without making a move. And, you know, you got to sometimes just push the door open and see that dropping that letter in the mailbox. That's how I got a TV reporter job too. I called the, the news director and said, should I send a tape? He goes, Nope, we have no turnover here. We have no jobs. And my stepfather said, send a tape anyway. I said, send a tape anyway. They're expensive. He goes, send a tape anyway. The guy called me the next week. We had three people quit. When can you be up here? Mm-hmm. What if you don't do those? Where are you today? If you don't do those, it's crazy. Perfect. What's the worst that's going to happen? They say, no, so that's my stepfather's line right there. What's this the is they can say. That's how this podcast in today's modern form is. How did I get to know Jeff? I knew Jeff because I was on Instagram. I followed a uh, a page who put out a picture that uh, this little production company was filming this little short film about war dogs. Sent that production company and hey, would you like to come on my podcast? That no one knows about. And they said, where are you at? I said, I'm in Florida. They said, hey, imagine that we're filming at the you know on this location. Or it is sure that's right behind my dad's house. Went down there. Jeff was the historical advisor on there. Interviewed the whole cast and crew. Um, did follow-up episodes to help them through publicity. Jeff came on a few times and said, hey, Jeff, you want to join the podcast? Sure. Henry came to me because somebody that I knew through the living history world who organized the 75th anniversary of Peleliu in Fort Morgan, Alabama, and Tarawa, who had been on the show a few times. He ran into Henry through Facebook. Henry said, hey, I'm kind of looking to get in the podcast world. This person reached out to me, said, hey, you mind if Henry comes on your show, gets his feet wet? We had him on two or three times and said, hey, Henry, do you want to launch a podcast from the ground up? Do you want to join ours? And so this show in itself is put together the way it is now through just weird happenstance and opportunities. And networking. It's all networking is huge, too. Getting just just get to know as many people as you possibly can and develop relationships. It seems like in the historical community, there's a willingness for people to help each other. That, yeah. that, that's what I've, you know, Dan, I told you when we talked a couple months ago, when my family and I were at the beach, you and I had a nice phone conversation. And I told you that, that I had like walked away, taking a really long hiatus from my passion for World War II, you know, around 12 years ago. And Back into the summer was when I kind of re-engaged very shortly after that, just like Don said, Don and Jeff invited me to be a part of this. And it's just been great ever since. But, um, you know, it, it, having gotten back into it, it's, it is, it's crazy the things that have worked out, you know, and then I started listening to your show and then, um, inviting you to come on here. I mean, it, but, but it seems like every little thing I've done, and I'm sure Jeff's encountered it too, as has Don in the historical community, you know, people have that inherent love of World War II history or whatever their shtick may be, but there seems to be a willingness for people to help each other. You know, not just that, I always wonder about us as a species, you know, we, <laughs> history, we, we lovers of history, because I always joke, you can go to the few bookstore chains that are still around, mm-hmm. and they may be selling music now and stuffed animals and, and writing journals and CDs, and they may have very few books left, but there will be a history section yep. in that. And that's somewhat robust because there's there's people born with a gene or something that makes us this way. You know, I used to war game uh, in person back in the old days. We did those things in person and you would you would meet such a cross section of people that were the sort that would never have interacted with each other in any other 
uh, walk of life, but that would come together. And, and, you know, I think about all those different characters and, you know, you had talked about earlier the political climate right now mm-hmm. and the different political types of beings that would show up around that war games table and be able to have wonderful historical conversations with meatball sandwiches, cans of Pepsi and <laughs> six hours or eight hours of war gaming. I mean, it was just, I look back on it now and I even told my wife the other day how glorious it was to have come up when we came up because I would have missed all that. And, and, and the funny thing is, is I, to dovetail with what we were talking about earlier with Jeff, uh, uh, when I was designing this show, I just felt like it was for the people that I knew around the war game table because we're a type, yep. you know, you guys are all the type. I'm the type. So I really do think we'll find out someday that this is, you know, and I actually said that the kind of show I was going to do was not for us because you don't need help to get interested in history. You were born that way, but there's a lot of people who get as interested into history as we are, but they're not born that way. They have, somebody has to give them an in. And Jeff was talking about it as a, as a teacher of, of high school students and whatnot, where's that in. And by the way, Jeff, we never finished that, but here's the way I would look at the in. I think that you tell kids that history is not a bunch of names and dates and geopolitical events and all that. Every single thing in life has a history, right? There's a history of dentistry, right? So so what you try to do is you ask kids what they're already interested in, and then you talk about the history of that subject. And what you get across is not when Columbus, you know, rolled up on North America. What you get is teaching them about context and evolution, right? So you say, if you're into motorcycles or if you're into fashion, well, how did you get from this motorcycle in 1918 to the one we have today? Write me a paper on the evolution of that. And you're inherently drawing upon something they're already interested in, and you're teaching them the historical method and and how times change and things evolve based on earlier forms, how A turns to B turns to C. They still don't know when Columbus came to the North American shores, but most kids don't remember that anyway, but they'll remember what you teach them about context and development and evolution and how things follow other things, right? The, the process of history. And so that I think is the end. Start with what they're already into rock and roll music or rap or whatever it might be. Uh, you've taken the words right out of my mouth because every time I ask students, a lot of times they say, Oh, history is my least favorite subject. Why? Because you have to memorize dates and names. They're like, yeah, guys that's not that's not history and it's funny because yeah i i've learned to try to make that make that connection to you know oh this uh for example i saw a student was doing a report on on captain blackbeard and i said oh i hope you're gonna put you're gonna put a little thing in there about uh, blackbeard's mistress and he went, mr copsetta you know this is a paper i'm doing for i said well i mean uh i said it's not a person and they were like really intrigued you never heard of blackbeard's mistress I said no i said it's a game that he enjoyed so much that it was named his mistress because that's all he was doing i said but you would know it as connect four and they went oh. i said that's history that's history not names and dates but a connection where we're all it's it's more of a lesson in humanities really than anything else is how we are all really truly connected that's history it's it's the story of, of you and me and us not December 7th, 1941, and this and that. So yeah, I have certainly, like I said, you've taken the words out of my mouth. And I love your saying, life is a verb. That really resonates with me because I, I'll share a, a quick personal story about why I do what I do. And I don't even know if Don or, or Henry knows this. Um, 
when I meet people now, they ask me, you know, oh man, Jeff, you know, what do you, what do you do? What do you, what is it that you do? I have to figure out like some kind of an, an elevator speech because I, I do, I am involved in so much and I have to kind of like, I'm rambling again. You don't need to know all this. I do this and this. That's we'll leave it at that. You know, I, I try to learn my lesson because I'm involved in a lot of things. And the reason why is because I distinctly remember um, the very first American casualty that I saw when I was in Baghdad. I had no idea who it was. And but it was it was horrendous. And I spent most of the deployment trying to learn who that was. And it wasn't until we were on our way home, because it wasn't anybody in my unit or anything like that. Um, I, I found out who it was and I found out that uh, where he was from and that he had a four year old son and a two year old daughter. And this was back in this was back in 04. Fast forward to probably April or May 2011. I had a five-year-old son and my wife was pregnant with a girl. And I'm painting the nursery, purple and pink, right? You know, bubble gum and sugar plum were the colors that we did in the nursery. And then that's when it hit me that I will soon have a son and a daughter but i'm going to be there at the baseball games helping with homework and every other extracurricular uh i since we have since added another son and daughter to the mix so we now have a total of four and that's why i do as much as i possibly can because i want to live for all of those guys that can no longer. If I would have been snuffed out when I was 20 years old, to think of everything that I've done since then, it's, it's enormous. I feel like I've lived multiple lifetimes because of all of the, uh, all the opportunities I've had, all the places I've been. I, I, can't even, I can't even believe that it's only been 18 years since the war. And I think about how much I've done. And then I think about how much of that could have been snuffed out and how close it was on several occasions. And then to think of how many times it was snuffed out over the course of human history and American history, and how many times it was snuffed out every single day during the Second World War, how many lives that never really fully got to live. Um, it it kind of, it gets you right, right there in the gut. So I have uh, an obligation that I feel just this inherent obligation to, to make sure that I'm doing everything with my life that I possibly, that I possibly can and to share it with as many people as I can. Um, that's why I'm doing it. You know, I think when you're talking about that, it, it, uh, go back to the First World War again, how much that was a sentiment that was written about during the war and after the war, th this idea of the enormity of of the potential that had been lost in all these people, right? A generation, as they said, lost on the battlefield and what that generation might have done had they lived on instead. So you get the the poems by the great First World War poets and the uh, uh, you get the stuff after the war uh, with there was a giant movement afterwards of, of people. I mean, uh, um, Somerset Maugham wrote about it in books like The Razor's Edge 
footage where the impact of what those people saw literally created the 1920s in many of its various worldviews and permutations. And different people came to different sorts of conclusions, right? So your conclusion was, and it's a very uh, normal one, right? That you're going to live, that you, but but a lot of people were, were of the opinion, another movement arose where it was much more bohemian and life is so precarious, you better just suck in all the good stuff you can while you can, because, you know, tomorrow we die, right? There's a the attitude that you talk about is so traumatically changing that you can see how these events where millions upon millions die have this long sort of, if you'll pardon the term, aftertaste, historical aftertaste that is woven through the lives of the survivors like you and haunted by the potential of all of the people who didn't get to make it past 20 or 24 or 28. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Henry, your dad saw that in spades, right? And in the in Vietnam, I, I read once that that was the genesis of, of the term wasted. When somebody mm -hmm. was killed, they were wasted. Mm -hmm. And the genesis was supposedly, if it's correct, was that that was because of, I mean, literally everything that was about to come to this person for the rest of their life has just been wasted. The potential has been wasted, everything. Well, you know, the closing paragraphs of with the Obrey, I mean, my dad said so many bright futures consigned to the ashes of the past. That's right. That's right. That's right. Your dad, your dad's line at the, that, that was used at the start of um, Hell in the Pacific. He's the very first thing you see. I, mm -hmm. I, I can almost quote that from memory and I have it saved on my phone, a little video copy of it, because that was to me, that was one of the most pr profound things I'd ever heard anyone say about the the only ones who know what war is really like, you know, are people in the front line. I, I love that line. Yeah, that I remember him saying that quite a few times. Because we uh, started to venture down the road of uh, books, let's go ahead and segue into that section of the show. This is where we uh, explain to everybody what books we're currently reading, make suggestions, and so on and so forth. Now, Jeff, you texted me earlier about a book, and you wanted to uh, take a little few seconds on that. So if you want to go ahead and crack open this segment before we wrap up the show, that'd be great. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, it's a great segue because I mentioned last week I've been reading a lot of Hemingway talking about somebody coming from first world war experiences and uh, doing something with it uh but i have i have veered from from hemingway but i will be back uh but this is a book that um my dad i remember my dad reading it uh when i was a kid and he had gotten it from an uncle of mine and it was just one of those books it would just come up in conversation oh man jeff have you ever i said dad you know i i what's the name of it i'd love to read it and he couldn't really ever figure it out uh, so we, we, uh, tracked down my uncle and I said, Hey, you lend my dad a book like back in the eighties, <laughs> you know, do you remember kind of, kind of conversations how it went? And I said, well, you're talking about this and then the other day, and he, uh, I think it was this one. So I found it's, it's an early copy. I want to say this is the second edition, uh, from 1969, but Martin Caden's flying forts. Hmm. Um, you know, so Dan, I'm a huge Eighth uh, Air Force. You know, growing up, B-17s were my world. Getting to meet the pilot of the Memphis Bell as a young kid, um, and, and the Pacific as well. The Pacific, the Guadalcanal Diary, was probably the first book I read uh, about World War II. I think I was 12. Um, so there was there was a give and take there, but there was just something about the B-17s, and I thought, okay, it's another book about B-17s, right? 
But I, I asked Don if I could take maybe 90 seconds and just just a small excerpt just from the forward of this book to kind of set the stage because it gives me a whole new perspective when you're talking about a land war compared to a war fought in the air. When shortly after the turn of the century, men took to the air to wage war, they also baffled and harassed the historian. Until the Great War of 1914-1918, fields of battle might be revisited and the paths of armies walked again. There were maps to consult and points of shredded geography to relearn what had trampled the earth underfoot. Even great battles at sea, with ponderous vessels chained to strategies long established, remained restricted within time and two-dimensional movement. Not so the arena of aerial conflict. There, as many as 30,000 men in winged chariots had fought a single terrible duel that covered not simply thousands of square miles, but tens of thousands of cubic miles. An arena where only minutes after unbridled fury, the nature of the skies erased forever the scars of battle. The only marker of the combat waged in the heavens is the memory of the participants and the statistical hieroglyphics of the survivors. Never is there the opportunity to revisit the scenes where men and machines clashed. The debris, the spume of battle, the contrails of funereal pyres of greasy smoke, the shattered chunks and bits and pieces of metal, the searing lash of flame, gleaming empty shell cases and torn parachutes, gutted behemoths and limb flailing men. All these vanished forever with the first sigh of the wind. There is no such thunder in history, nor will ever be again as filled the skies of Europe during World War II. A thunder from a stream of mighty bombers many hundreds of miles in length, 10,000 engines beating sonorously against an earth far below, and the cry, deep-throated and howling, of another 3,000 engines, the fighters rising and swooping to do battle. Thunder upon thunder, explosions and racketing thousands of guns, a cacophonous rainfall of millions of spent bullets and cannon shells and debris and bombs. Then, the gentle sighing of the wind, silence. The air cleansed as it was before the approach of the metallic thunder. I have read countless books on the air war, but never have I thought that it could never be retraced like when I walked Custer's battlefield or you know, the OK Corral in Tombstone. It just really, really caught me. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. No Martin Cade, Flying Force. Wow. That's a deep bucket list because the amount of time it took for you to find it. But we now we have a title and we have Amazon, so I'm sure some of our listeners will track it down a lot easier. But I'm sure part of that that myth and lure of you wanting to know what the name of this book was for so many years and then to open it up and have that presented to you, it's like, yes, this treasure hunt was yeah, so worth it. Was, it. it was so it worth was it. It was refreshing. My dad just kept saying, oh, it's just every chapter is a different story of a b-17 and these incredible ways that they survived and the one that's never really been accounted for that that landed completely on the runway um with i think one or two engines out with without a single man inside of the b-17 i think it, it was in november of 44 it, it, it it's baffled people to this day they never really figured out the parachutes were still in there maps were still on the navigation table and there was not a single soul inside of that b-17 but it came in and landed, and and I think one engine, one engine was out, and it kind of veered off the runway, and a wing dug into the ground, and then that was it. And somebody had to climb in and kill the magnetos. 
It's unbelievable. I mean, there's just so much mystery that shrouds the air war. And now I know why, because you can't retrace the steps. You know, we, we are kind of uh, a little bit held hostage by the men that, that were there. there. There is no other geography about it, which I find absolutely interesting and fascinating because when I read a book, I think I've mentioned before, especially to Henry, uh, when I read a book about Peleliu or Iwo or Tarawa, Tarawa Canal, I, I need a map. If the book doesn't provide a map, I'm going to have a map. It may be in a, it may be a silk map came out of my collection, but I need a map, and I mm -hmm. and I need the author to not confuse north and south. Um, you know, and, and I've come across that a few times. Like, wait a minute, I'm tracking the movements. That's some poor editing there. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but that's important to really kind of under to me to really kind of understand that and. I will say this too, that that's kind of one of the things that I didn't really care to read a whole lot of memoirs because I was more, I, I wanted to know, wanted to know the battle. I didn't want to know this because uh, it, that's another dimension. Now, of course, reading Henry's dad's book changed everything for me. And I'm not saying that because Henry's sitting here. I think he knows. Uh, when I read that, that was okay. Okay. Now I can go back to reading memoirs because. Uh, that's just a, that's a special brew. Um, but uh, anyway, so for for our reenactors out there, for for our would be and would be and will be historians, uh, it's an interesting thought when you're when you're tracing the air war that the earth has really hasn't left anything behind, you know, uh, like in the battles on the land. So I find that really interesting. It is. It's a really it's a really interesting angle. I agree. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to a certain point, you know, some might try to present the argument that the ocean battles are the same way, but with the proper equipment, you can always locate, you know, the remains of those battles. But no, the the planes, with the exception of the small handfuls you might find in a jungle somewhere, it's absolutely right. It's it's gone to history, except for those who were there who could tell the story. Dan, what are you reading, friend? Oh God! Um, I always have like like ninety books half started, you know? <laughs> yep. and, and I can't tell you what I'm reading now because that would divulge the the next topic. But uh, but I do have a bunch of the and now of course as you guys maybe are too, you get on the publishers list because they they want the mm. authors on the show. Yep. So I get. I get all these. It's like, well, you know, at the old radio stations, you yep. always had like the advanced copies of the books lying around. Um, so I'm always like starting a bunch of things. Some book just showed up about uh, uh, it's an interesting concept where they look at a bunch of people that you would normally today look at as evil. So think about it like a Hitler type and, and, and it's seven <laughs> or eight or nine of these people. And they go back and they show you what their childhood was like and how they started out. And I think it's called like becoming evil or something like that. But it's it's supposed to trace the development in like a, a Hitler's life. You know, where where was the moment of of going wrong or did it start that way from birth? Or so I just started that one. So, sorry for veering off the camera there. You're talking about books that showed up at the, the station. I was organizing my library the other day and. I can't remember what book it is, but I have one of those books. I still have the the one sheet or the publisher's note, and I'm like, huh, I wonder if I can still use this to get a hold of something. Yeah, it says advanced copy right on the front. Yeah, yeah it's four years old now. <laughs> Never cracked it open. But uh, Henry, what do you got in the old? Uh, I know you're just finished uh, Tower of Skulls. What do you got in the pike now? Well, I just finished uh, Ian Toll's first volume, Pacific Crucible. Yep. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then I started. It's it's by a guy named Michael Claringbold, 
who grew up and lived all his life in Port Moresby. And it is called South Pacific Air War Volume One. And it was supposed to be a trilogy. And in fact, has grown to like five volumes. Um, I think it's published by Avondale Books, but he's also a digital illustrator. And, and I mean, it's, it is fantastic. I mean, I like, so Dan, like Jeff, I love the air war in World War II. I love B-17s, 8th Air Force, but I love the stuff in the Pacific as well. And this guy just, the air war over New Guinea, Southwest Pacific, he really gets granular in his detail, he, he being a digital illustrator, he does some really nice color maps um, and also good color plates of these aircraft that he's talking about. Zeros and Australian Weiraways and Hudsons. Um, and I, I really, I mean, I've, I've read really good reviews of his work and I'm about 40 pages into it and enjoying it a lot. Yeah, I just finished up the... Um the coast watchers book that we've been talking about the lonely vigil, which is really good. And I started reading another book for research purposes, but I need to jump into something else. But I think that is just about going to wrap it up. Now, for those of you who don't know, which I'm sure you do, Dan Carlin's podcast, hardcore history can be found on Apple podcast, uh, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever fine podcasts are found. <laughs> Dan, do you have anything you want to plug before we go? No, no, I'm good, guys. Just thanks again for having me on. It's much appreciated. And once again, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by nobody but you. But if you want to support the uh, station and the channel, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that Patreon link, like, and subscribe, and sign up. It only costs you a dollar a month. And please head over to YouTube, log in, subscribe there. And something you said earlier, Dan, made me think of this TikTok meme that was going around last year, which I'm going to add a little bit to the end, and that is... When men get to a certain age, they have two paths to go down. They either get in the World War II or they smoke meat. Well, I'm just glad. Here's four guys who never mastered that dry rub recipe. So until next time, guys, thanks for hanging out. For myself, Jeff, Henry, and Dan Carlin, this is the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Thank you guys so much, and we will talk to you soon. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>